Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joel Show podcast. Today on the pod, vital infrastructure. The Granville Street Bridge gets a much-needed upgrade, but is it at the expense of motorists? Plus, streaming crackdown. Netflix rolls out new fees for password sharing as it begins blocking devices. We'll have all the details. Plus, check your email. We look into Canadian companies sharing vital customer data with Facebook's parent company, Meta. Plus, we'll have the latest on the Turkey-Syria earthquake with a live report from Aleppo. That's all next on the Jazz Johal Show podcast. Big news today in the city of Vancouver. Uh, the city announced the, that uh, the Vancouver's uh, Granville Bridge uh, will be undergoing significant construction, $50 million worth of con- uh, construction to convert two lanes on the west side of the bridge into separated pedestrian and bike routes, uh, similar to, to what you would see on the, what you do see on the Broad Street Bridge. Um, Pre-COVID, approximately 65,000 vehicles crossed the eight-lane uh, span daily, well under capacity. Um, and of course, during construction, the bridge deck will shrink to uh, two vehicle lanes traveling each way. And as I said, the total uh, uh, construction cost is $50 million. Uh, earlier today, uh, my colleague Joe Bennett spoke to Paul Storer. He's the Director of Transportation for the City of Vancouver, uh, where he gave us an update on the current state of the bridge when it comes to cyclists and pedestrians. Right now, the Granville Bridge is a big barrier to walking and cycling. Um, there are no cycling facilities, obviously, so it's a very uncomfortable bridge to bike across. Uh, we see about half the people who actually do bike across end up on the sidewalk because the roadway is so uh, scary. But there's also no, the, the walking connections aren't very good either. It's inaccessible. Uh, people who do walk across the bridge are close to fast-moving traffic. The connections at either end are scary because you're crossing uh, those high-speed ramps. That was uh, Paul Storer speaking to our Jill Bennett a couple of hours ago on the current state of the bridge for cyclists and pedestrians. What I found interesting the, uh, also, and, and, and look, uh, here's my bias, which our next guest will set me straight. I'm just a, a simple suburbanite driving into the city every day. What I found interesting also is that the project will see the removal of traffic loops at the north end of the bridge. Now, Mr. Storer, who, as I said, spoke to my colleague Joe Bennett earlier today, uh, said the Granville Bridge, when it was built uh, back in the 1950s, was overbuilt. Take a listen. Basically, the Granville Bridge was really overbuilt for what's there today. It was designed to be part of a freeway system that was never built. Essentially, all of the traffic that's on the bridge, and basically we can get onto the bridge through the signals at either end, could fit into two lanes in either direction. So we're able to maintain two lanes in either direction during the construction period. And now there will be times when the loops are closed and there's a, probably a five to six month window when uh, Granville Street itself, which between Drake and the Howe and Seymour ramps will be closed. So during that time, we're going to see changes to circulation, probably a little bit of pressure on uh, some of the intersections at the north end, particularly Howe and Drake. But we're working to manage that to reduce uh, the impacts to traffic. That is Paul Storis speaking to our Jill Bennett a few hours ago. He is the Director of Transportation for the City of Vancouver. Well, our next guest uh, is a fellow at SFU Centre for Dialogue. Uh, he knows the city very well. He's also a former city councillor as well. He's a former Translink board member. 
Of course, I'm talking about Gordon Price. Gordon, thank you for joining us today. Here to set you right. <laughs> thank you so much. First of all, you're... Th- I, I actually may be more qualified than you think I am. <laughs> well, I think Back you're very qualified. Air, but you, understand, you understand the planning yeah, well, side and you understand the politics, and that, that's you know, the, most of the battle in this city, I'll tell you that much. <laughs> I am more than that, though. I worked on a study... Back in the early 80s, uh-huh. what's what's the problem with Granville Street and what can we do about it? Okay, well, this let's just... Before I was on council, yeah. All right, well, let's let's touch on the bridge just for a moment, first and foremost. Uh, this is a good news story for you? Oh, God, yeah. <laughs> this is terrific. <laughs> I think this is... Uh, you know, it's one of those... Uh, transformative might be too strong a word, you know, but it is certainly going to solve some of the problems that we identified back then. And what 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 are we solving here? Well, you know, the main problem is the bridge itself. It is a giant freeway off-ramp. I mean, if you're going uh, north on the bridge, right, you can get up to, what, 80 to 100 clicks. You don't even slow down until you get to Davie Street. And the bridge, yeah, a barrier, but essentially it eliminated really any reason to walk or go south on Granville. There was no real attraction. And then you had to fight the bridge itself. So if it can make connections to False Creek, mm-hmm. Granville Island, if it can kind of knit the city together and give a good connection to the, oh, let's say, number of the bike routes that will go through there, it may well give economic vitality and a good reason to go south on Granville. Why is there a need to remove the traffic loops at the north end of the bridge? That's actually, I think, the biggest problem. If you're coming, uh, say, across the ferry on Granville Island mm-hmm. and, and you want to get into the city, what's your first instinct? It's not to try and get past those loops. And the land value that is locked up in those loops that could really go to some kind of activity, housing, cultural activities, you know, extend the entertainment district, knit together Falls Creek with downtown Vancouver, restore Granville to what it was back when this city first started, mm-hmm. one of the great streets of the city. Uh- and look, and I understand we have to share our streets, pedestrians, cyclists, uh, motorists. Um, is this the great equalizer that the city is I mean, trying to equalize things? I mean, this, the bridge obviously came in, came in at a time when we were building freeways. Uh, people were in their vehicles. But when I see you know these kind of things being done, I, I remind myself also that we're a city of 2.5 million people, not just Vancouver proper, but the region. We're going to be at, I think, 4 million by 2040. The bridge is always going to be needed. People will move from you know internal combustion vehicles to electric vehicles, but we'll still need that bridge. Do you worry sometimes that we become too sort of bicycle-centric or walking-centric? And I, I think it's fabulous. Don't get me wrong. But we still have to accommodate the car somewhere along the way as well. Oh, Chaz, if it really created a real congestion problem, we wouldn't do it. (laughs) (laughs) I'm practical enough to know that. So take a look at the Burrard Bridge. You remember the stories back then. Mm -hmm. It was just going to create congestion, hellish congestion. Do you remember that hellish congestion after the two lanes were put in, (laughs) the bike lanes? No, you don't, because it didn't happen. It didn't happen. Yeah, and look, I really think the engineers are good at this kind of stuff. If they really thought that this is going to create a lot of problems, they would be telling council, yeah, okay, come up with some better ideas. Mm-hmm. As you heard in the interview, uh, the bridge doesn't really exceed its daily capacity of about 60,000. hasn't done it for decades, and there's no reason to think that it's going to actually increase significantly in the future. 
so long as you have alternatives, and that's transit, yeah, good walking, cycling. Yeah. But if you can find that balance, uh, don't worry about the congestion. It's not going to happen. Uh, how much is this also being driven when regards to just um, vehicle traffic? I think it was 65,000 vehicles I was mentioning there. 65,000 vehicles crossed the eight-lane span daily pre-COVID. That's not a lot. That's not a lot, not yeah. A lot. Uh, a no, lot of no, the, it's not a lot, actually. And, and, but but it's, it's, it's probably not very much. Yeah, and it's probably going to be less now as people are working from home. Not everybody, and, and private sector is certainly asking people to come back to work as well. But it's still n- n- not going to reach the pre-COVID numbers in your mind. Well, the numbers, if you're talking just numbers of people, that is going to go up. And I think you, I hope you will be surprised once the Arbutus Greenway is connected and we have a good connection to Granville Island, that you'll see significant increase in walking, cycling, and all the other little motorized things that are going to pop up mm-hmm. <laughs> these days. You know, the, 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 the bicycle, as we've known and loved it or hated it, it's going to be rapidly replaced by all kinds of things with small electric motors, just as the car itself. That technology is changing too. Yeah, I weave by those folks after the show every day when I get try to get back to my vehicle, and you already you already <laughs> see that trend. That's a good thing. I mean, it's 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 a, it's a wonderful thing. Um, is this is a a bigger, broader question? Are planners still? wanting to build bridges and yes i go through the massey tunnel every day and i'm not feeling sorry for myself or anything like that i'm just saying those big infrastructure projects that british columbians are did very well and we still do very well i believe uh, are are those out of fashion because i i would certainly hope not i mean a big bridge like to replace the tunnel that's been debated it continues to be debated some have said we still shouldn't go back to the original one that was proposed by under the bc liberals and what the ndp doing is doing is the right thing others disagree Uh, that's a whole different debate but the issue of big infrastructure building the big bridges that still move people and most importantly most importantly people in vehicles is that still uh, in fashion, are we still as as our planners moving away from that building infrastructure? Oh, we love it. <laughs> no, I mean, I, I I get the transit, but just the, the the big bridges that actually move people. We still need to move oh, people. Uh, why are you separating them? Well, I'm not. I mean, I'm, I'm separating them because it, it, we politicize everything in this province. That bridge, and, and I go back to the Massey one, Massey argument once again. Uh, I think it was the right project. I really do. It's not because I I travel over it. I just think it was the right thing to do at that point. And it seems sometimes that we get so far into the transit, walking, cycling conversation, which I think works in big dense cities and works in the context of Vancouver. But for suburbanites, we still got to build those big bridges because a lot of us still travel by vehicle. Oh, absolutely. And if you want that to work, build transit. Yeah, and the bridge was going to have a SkyTrain on it, potentially. No, 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 not on the bridge. It doesn't matter about that. Hmm. If you don't provide an alternative for growth that has a chance of working, transit has proven itself, and you only build the bridge, you will fill up the bridge. (laughs) It happens all the time. If you're going to spend the money... Do it in a way that you're going to take a lot of the pressure that you need off the bridge so that when you do build it, and yes, it's a necessary part of the transportation system, it has a good chance of working. Yeah. And the reason I say that about the bridge as well is half a billion dollars improvement in regards to HOV overpasses and getting people through that uh, on the bridge and then out to SkyTrain in Richmond. That was part of the part of the project as well in regards to the 10-lane bridge. So, But I, I, I digress just for a second. Let's go back to Granville just for a second. It does it does get this suburbanite all riled up, as you can tell. Oh, I love it. Uh, <laughs> um, the 15-minute city. Let's just, I just want a final question to you. 
Is that fundamentally doable in, in, in this city? I mean, maybe in parts of Vancouver proper, I don't disagree, but do you think even out in the suburbs, we can do that 15-minute city, the 15-minute city being within 15 minutes, you should be able to live, work, and play? Like Brentwood? <laughs> yes, Brentwood, or Metrotown, probably. There's a few places, Lowheed, right? Yeah, there's a few of those, right. uh, but uh, is it feasible fact, still? Look at our skyline. Look at our skyline now, Jazz. Mm-hmm. I mean, we've been around long enough to see the transformation of it. Yep. Think of those as 15, if not five-minute cities. That's what that is. And we're good at it. We're real good at it. And you can see it on our skyline. And you can just take a SkyTrain, get off at the station. There it is or will be. So, yeah, we can do it. But, look, uh, people like living in lower density. They like living in more, quote, rural environments. Offer the choice. And it works out pretty well. Uh, Not going to be perfect. And things will change. But yeah, definitely we can do it, have done it, will do it. And so long as we kind of get that balance right and are flexible to technological as well as social change, uh, I would be very optimistic about this place. We, one thing we all agree on, Jazz, we don't want to screw this place up. Yeah, let's not. It, it's way too beautiful. No, we've been we here too long now. Way too much. I am too old yeah. to move anyway. I've done it before. That's enough. I'm done. Gordon, thank <laughs> Good you. News. Good news, Jazz. You won't have to. <laughs> all right. Thanks, Gordon. You bet. We knew it was inevitable. We knew it was coming. And today it was finally announced. The great Netflix password crackdown has begun. The streaming company announced its guidelines for password sharing today. What was interesting, I found interesting, that the guidelines were rolled out in Canada, in Portugal, in New Zealand, and in Spain. Some have said that uh, they want to test out this password strategy here in Canada and some of the other countries before they roll it out in the U.S., which is, of course, uh, Netflix's biggest uh, market and its most lucrative. Joining me now to talk a little bit about our good friends over at Netflix and what they're attempting is Andy Brar, our tech and digital lifestyle expert at handyandymedia.com. And I must say, for the first time in studio, good to in see you, man. studio, yes. Great it's, to be here. You, I just hear you all the time when yes. we talk, but it is amazing to have you in, in, in studio because I've been doing this show for almost a year and a half now and I haven't had an in-studio guest yet. So this is actually great for me and I hope we can finally get our guests coming through here all the time. So good to see you. Man. Yes, I feel privileged being your first in-studio guest, Jazz. <laughs> there you go. So walk me through. Uh, what are the guidelines saying? Well, it looks like uh, Love is not sharing your password anymore, which what Netflix tweeted about five years ago. They're, they're clamping down. And the reason is, as they understand that a lot of people are sharing passwords, they let it go for a long, long time. But now there's so much competition out there in streaming. Streaming is really the de facto way that people are consuming content these days. So they need to monetize. There's about 100 million people that are sharing passwords out there. And so they want to clamp down and they're going to use Canada as that test bed. So $7.99, if you have their premium account, so the 4K account, which allows four simultaneous streams. If you have two people, say like you have a family, your Mm -hmm. kids have now gone to university. There's two of them. For $7.99, you can add them onto your uh, premium account. So that's around $20.99, so $21 plus $7.99. So you're looking at around $30 a month if you want to have two additional people outside of your household to access your Netflix but, account. So it's if you're a parent and you got a couple of kids in university, you got to pay the extra $7.99? You have to pay. Now, the only other way that you can avoid that, and this is how Netflix is determining whether you live at home, because, Jazz, as you know, we all have multiple devices. Yeah. So the question is, how 
how are they determining if someone else is not part of your family? And the way they're doing that is your home Wi-Fi. They understand that if you are living in a family, you have a shared Wi-Fi account at your house. And when you log on to Netflix from the Wi-Fi, then it knows that you are part of that family. If after a month, there's a device that hasn't logged into your home Wi-Fi, that's how they tell that you're probably a freeloader on that Netflix account. So people in the next couple of weeks are going to receive emails if that's happening. They're tracking where you're logging on to Netflix. They're looking at the IP address to understand if you're at home or if you're watching it somewhere else. But if you're, if uh, I'm going to go back to my original argument, uh, you're, you're a family, you've got two kids in university, uh, let's say they're at UBC and they just haven't come home for a month or something like yeah. that, they're just busy, whatever it may be, or they're going to school in UVic or Toronto, they're not going to be coming home right away. Yes. So you got to pay the seven ninety nine. You got to pay the seven ninety nine. Now that's for the premium. If you have their standard package, yeah. you're allowed one additional person or a freeloader, and you still have to pay seven ninety nine. So the pricing is very interesting. If you're on the premium, you can have two people on there. You pay seven ninety nine. If you have the standard, only one person, but you're still paying seven ninety nine for that extra account. What do you think people going to? How do you think people going to react to this? I'm, I'm like part of me goes, okay, I get it. You got a business. Uh, you shouldn't be sharing passwords, but there, there's a number you hit where people go, it's too expensive. Yes. And you add on Disney Plus, which I'm going to assume they're going to do this eventually too, right? Well, you would expect that. If I was one of the streaming companies, Jazz, I would do the opposite. I would say, hey, you can have your sharing. Love is sharing your password. Sharing I would tweet that out. Yeah, yeah. Um, because you can then take the, the people that are probably going to cancel Netflix. You can probably attract them. Because in this day and age... Like we were talking before, people barter their passwords. I'll give you my Netflix for your Disney+. Plus. Families were doing this all the time. That's going to be kind of ramped down. So the question is, you're going to have to pick what streaming platform are we going to continue on? And I think what you might see, and I was wondering if this will happen, what if people go back to torrents? What if we go right back to stream, illegal streaming of content? And I think that is a very big possibility, especially with the high cost of living right now and inflation. I just don't think people can afford to have all these streaming platforms all at once. You've got good old-fashioned uh, cable or linear television. Uh, you've got HBO Crave. You've got Amazon Prime. You've got Disney Plus, And you've got Netflix now. Yes. Like something's got to give in regards to the TV ecosystem here, right? Yes. It's exactly what the psychologist Barry Schwartz used to say the paradox of choice you think having more choice would make you more happy but no when you just had one streaming platform netflix that's what you got but now we have so many different choices there's so much different content there's more scripted tv shows being made right now ever than before and people want to consume all those different types of shows but we can't afford all of these streaming platforms so this is why netflix is testing it in canada they want to Test, see what happens in this North American Western society before they roll it out into the U.S. Because the last thing they want is people to cancel their Netflix subscription. Maybe people will go to the ad-supported, the basic level, where you mm -hmm. have about four to five minutes of ads. Time will tell, but uh, it, the streaming is is very competitive these days. But if you go to the ad supported, then you just that's the the basis of why you went to streaming in the first place, yes. which is no ads. So that's just good old fashioned TV again. That exactly, we've come full circle. I, you know, and I've been telling people, you know, the cable subscription is looking pretty good these days because. Back then, you know, at least you had a multiple channels and different types of content. Now, I just don't think people can have multiple streaming subscriptions unless you're making a lot of money. You know, for the average family out there, it's going to be really tough. But our we're so used to it now. 
And you can't take that away from the kids. Imagine taking Disney Plus away from the kids. Yeah. It's probably not going to oh, go very it's well. Not gonna, it's not going to be great. And, and I got to hand it to Disney. When, uh, the Black Panther they just released a few months ago. It's on Disney Plus yeah. now. Avatar is doing very well in the theaters, making lots of money. But that's eventually going to go on Disney Plus as well. And it, 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 they've closed the window in regards to releases. But when I look at streaming services, there's also like Sundance and, and Paramount. Yeah. Um, you know, in the, in the UK, you've got uh, BritBox uh, and then BBC, which is really good programming as well. Like somewhere along the way, that's enough for consumers, right? Yes. Yeah. Yes. And that's the that's the part I that I'm actually still shocked by at the end of the day is that there's still money being pumped into these streamers that something has to give eventually. There just can't be this many. And they expect us to pay extra now for the Netflix password. Exactly. And if you look at what it costs to make these TV shows, it's not cheap. It's a huge investment. And they don't even know if they're going to get those returns. Are people going to sign up uh, watch a show and then cancel their Netflix subscriptions. You know, this is what we're going to be the watching. Other thing. Yeah, you're right. Very good point. Like a series comes on. Uh, is it, what's the one on Apple? Ted Lasso. Yes. Which is a, he has a huge following. Uh, but I've I've met people who said, oh yeah, I'll sign up for Apple, then I'll cancel. And that's a lot of a lot of folks are doing that too. So don't be surprised if the streaming services don't let you binge watch anymore. They'll they'll do slow tier releases because ah. they're going to try to keep you onto the platform. So we had it really good for a long time, Jazz. And uh, the days of binge watching, the the days of freeloading off your your parents' account, those are coming to an end. I'm going to have to ha- even talk to my parents because they're going to get their Netflix is going to stop working soon. Oh, they've been using yours. They've been using mine. Oh, yes. it's in reverse. Yeah, well, yeah. And they, I don't live with my parents, so that the different IP addresses. So I expect that email, but ah. I get to avoid this awkward conversation of saying, you know, you should get your own subscription. Now they have to. Well, you know, you raise a very good point. The the idea that um, they won't be allowing you to binge watch, so they'll put it in tiers like once they'll have a release once yes. a week for. That's just normal TV again. Exactly. Like, <laughs> We've come full circle again. We got ads. We got breaks. We got everything that we had in TV, yeah. but except now it's all streaming. We're joined by Andy Barrars, tech and digital lifestyle expert at handyandymedia.com. And I got to say, it's great to see him because I usually just talk to him over the phone. So great to have you in the studio, my friend. Yes. It's it's great. It's great to just look somebody in the eye and have a, co- a human conversation. Of course, we're talking about Netflix cracking down on password sharing. And as Andy said, $7.99 extra on top of what you're already paying for Netflix. Uh, if you are sharing passwords with uh, friends or, or, or loved ones, or kids, uh, and of course that doesn't include your Disney, your your uh, HBO Crave, your Amazon, and whatever else you're paying for. Give me a call in the open line if this is going to change uh, whether or not you stick with Netflix. Uh, will you be cutting back on the streaming services you subscribe to? That 604-280-9898, star 9898 on your cell phone. Let's go to the open line. Let's go to Jonathan in North Vancouver. Hi, Jonathan. Hi, how's it going today? Uh, it's going very well. So what's this mean for you? Are you going to cut back on Netflix? I'm not quite sure yet. I had a question for Andy here. If if you have a vacation home and you're you're using a different IP address, but it's legitimately you going to your vacation home or using your cell phone on a vacation, how would they crack down on that or how would they... Uh, Netflix deal with that. Andy? Yeah, that's a great question. So they understand that a lot of people use Netflix when they travel. So they're going to allow for up to seven days 
that you don't have to log in back to your account. I think after seven days, you might get an email where you have to verify that you are who you say you are. You're the account holder. So you might have to do two-factor verification. They'll send you a PIN and mm. then you have to register that again. Because the last thing they don't want to do is alienate people while they're traveling, making so much friction just to log into your Netflix, which usually you just open the app and it works. So that's a very interesting question because you have snowbirds, people who are traveling yeah, all the time. five, six months at a time. So we'll have to see how they do that. But if you're the primary account holder of that, you're going to get that email while you're traveling and you should be able to verify and keep going. But you'll have about a seven-day grace period before you'll get those emails. So for our audience, I'm sure most understand, but for two-factor authentication, you get an email to say, yes, I'm traveling, or you just have to click to say, that is me. Yeah, they'll send you a pin or something like that. Exactly. You have to click on this link to verify. Email or text, whatever yes, you But want. if you're a freeloader and you're traveling, you're going to be in trouble because you're going to have to text that person and say, you're about to get this email and uh, verify it. So there's... Trust me, there will be loopholes, Jazz, and I will find those loopholes because that's what I do. <laughs> we'll have you on. I really appreciate it. Jonathan, thank you for your call. Let's go to, oh, Karen in Palm Springs. Hello, Karen. Hi, guys. I enjoy listening to CKNW on my radio player app when I'm down here. So I stay on top of all the uh, Vancouver shows and weather on C- and news. So uh, it's great. I and really appreciate that. Sort of my thunder. Because um, my question was the same. If I've got recreational property down here and I use my Netflix account, Andy, I think you explained it that I can. There'll be some kind of a login I have to do, so I can keep that account active when I'm away. Uh, Karen, how long do you stay uh, in Palm Springs generally when you go down there? <clears throat> I'm retired. Ah. <laughs> So, yeah, uh, November till the beginning of March. Okay. Uh, so, Andy, in regards to Karen's question, would it be any different if Karen, let's say, were to leave Vancouver, but before she left, she downloaded many shows, like just yeah. downloaded eight different shows, you know, 30, 40 episodes, whatever it may be. Would she be impacted or would she still have to do the probably the two-factor authentication? She'll probably still, yeah. It's going to – Netflix will determine based on the IP that she is somewhere else and then they're going to probably send her an email saying you have to do that. But that's always a good idea because we have to remember – the Netflix in the U.S. and Canada are different. There is some content that you can't get in the U.S. and vice versa in Canada. So if she does have favorite shows, it's always a good idea to download them before you travel. Okay, yeah, because I, I usually preload everything whenever I go on a trip because you don't want to mess around with, any, with the different Wi-Fi and all that kind of stuff. Uh, let's go to Sherry in Port Moody. Sherry, we got about 30 seconds. How are you today? Oh, I'm good, thank you. What's on your mind? Um, my Well, it was about travel, but another situation I was thinking about is when you're waiting for kids, let's say they're in sports or whatever, and you're sitting in your car or you're at Starbucks, and you're always using a different IP address for your Netflix. You're not away for seven days, but, you know, you're, you're at home, and then you're at Starbucks, and then you're at home, and then you're in the car. You know what I'm saying? So I don't know how they're going to monitor that. I do that Monday and Wednesday nights with my kids at basketball. Same mm-hmm. thing. I totally understand. Multitasking. So, Sherry, thank you so much for your call. Every parent says nodding their head. So would that impact you at all? If you're- no, no, because you're going to go back home eventually within that month period and log into Netflix again. So it knows that you're just kind of out and about, but it won't have, you know, you'll still be part of that family plan. All right. Andy, thanks for your time, my friend. Thanks, Jess. Good to see you. Yeah. yeah. 
All right, let's talk a little bit about emails. Uh, how often have you provided your email when you buy something online? You know, when you when they offer you, you know, 10% off if you provide an email, or maybe sometimes you go buy something and um, they'll ask you, you know, do you, do you want us to email um, your receipt to you? Well, they get access to your email. That's the, the, those are the retailers. Well, where does that all go? Reports in the past few weeks show your email is being shared more than you think. Now, recently, uh, Philip Dufresne, who's the Federal Privacy Commissioner, published a, a report that I think is best described as scathing, where he accused Home Depot of sharing data with uh, Facebook's parent company, Meta. Uh, basically, uh, Mr. Dufresne said that Home Depot did not have permission to share that information uh, with uh, Meta. Now, uh, the investigation found that Home Depot had been collecting customer email addresses at store checkouts for the purpose of providing customers with an electronic copy, just like I uh, had mentioned uh, earlier. Uh, Basically, uh, they do not have the right to provide that information. Uh, They did say, by the way, that uh, you get so... (laughs) You got asked so many times for permission, they felt that there's a fatigue there with consumers that they didn't want to bother you for seeking your permission. Well, today, Hudson's Bay said it was suspending all data transfers to Meta as well, which, of course, is the owner of Facebook and Instagram. Well, what does this all mean in regards to our data, how we protect our data, and what this uh, will mean in regards to the broader, broader conversation we ask as a society? There is, is an insatiable desire for data by these company, companies, but where does your consumer privacy protection begin as well. Well, Joining me now is Wendy Wong. She's a professor of political science and uh, principal research chair at UBC Okanagan. Professor Wong, thank you for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Well, it's a a fascinating conversation. First and foremost, the broader conversation about Home Depot and what what the Federal Privacy Commissioner uh, did in his report. Uh, How rare is that? I mean, some would say it's quite scathing in regards to him pointing this out. Is that a, a point that, you know, we should be looking at saying this is where things change or do you think this is just the start of a much bigger, broader conversation? Um, you know, it's hard to say, right? I mean, in my in my use of the privacy commissioner's reports, I've seen it be very direct, and in fact, they often go into quite a bit of detail to tell the public what exactly is going on. And and what comes to mind is the investigation of Cadillac Fairview a couple of years ago, and and its use of facial recognition technology, also surreptitiously um, in its malls. And, of course, Cadillac Fairview owns a fair number of famous malls here in Canada, including Eaton Centre in Toronto, of course, Mm -hmm. and the Chinook Centre. And so I think that what is, you know, these reports are very useful. I I think that perhaps Home Depot, PetSmart, Hudson's Bay, you name it, there's a bunch of very prominent retailers on that list uh, that have come out since the Privacy Commissioner started talking about the Home Depot case. And so I think it is a it is part of a broader conversation that we should be having. Um, what does what does this tell us? Because when I look at um, you know the EU, uh, the European Union, mm-hmm. they seem to be much more uh, aggressive in regards to protecting privacy, uh, challenging big data, big tech. Um, where would you see Canada in this broader conversation in regards to protecting our privacy? 
Yeah, you know, it's kind of, I think the way I think about it is governments in general are now coming to terms with the extent to which human behavior, our daily behaviors, our activities are becoming data. And those data are really useful for businesses to not just to sell us things, but to improve their products, to make search better, to, you know, help us do the things that we want to do in a more efficient or exciting or, you know, better way. So I think we're just coming to terms, governments are just coming to terms with just how ex- the, the extent to which our, our activities are being tracked and shared and analyzed by artificial intelligence, AI, and other types of analyses. And so, you know, the EU in some ways is leading in the sense that they have this regulation called the GDPR that does talk about data in relation to individuals. But I think the broader concern here, and this is what the debate is going on in Canada right now with a number of bills before the federal government, is is that the right way to think about things? Uh, is, the, is it about individuals and data or are we kind of missing the point, which is that even though individuals have data, take, you know, people's data gets stored in a, in a database, it gets shared with Meta and other companies. Um, but it's really, the data are valuable because it's, coll- it's about the collective. It's not just about you or I as individual shoppers or individual citizens of the public. It's about people like us. Companies want to know what people like us are going to be doing and how they can change their services or their offerings accordingly. Um- have we allowed, and we, I mean, the collective West, probably, and specifically the United States, uh, when, when you look at Facebook, uh, it's not only just Facebook, it's Instagram, it's WhatsApp. Mm-hmm. Uh, when you look at Google, it's not just Google, it's YouTube and many other smaller companies, uh, to the point some would argue, these big companies aren't really innovators anymore. They're so big, they buy innovative companies uh, and, and scoop up as much data and, more importantly, talent. Have we just allowed big tech to get too big and now we're trying to slowly, whether it's to our discourse, maybe in the early stages of maybe unwinding all of it? You know, I think that's a, I think that that depends on what, you know, you're sort of, there are a lot of different ways we can answer that question. And I think we could, there are different ways to think about how big is too big. I mean, certainly there have been very large conglomerates. Um, in history and also in, in other countries where companies are sort of structured differently. The way I sort of think about this isn't whether it's big tech is too big. I think it's recognizing how pervasive big tech has become in our lives. And the things you just listed off, you know, YouTube, Google, uh, Instagram, WhatsApp, these are services that we have come to rely on on a daily basis. And they collect data as a, as a matter of business. This is how they function. And so, you know, I, I think what, one of the things that I hope comes out of this, this finding with the privacy commissioner and, and this controversy on all these companies sharing data with Meta mm-hmm. is that we as consumers wake up, we as the public come to pay more attention to the fact that it's not just, you know, our emails or our purchasing patterns. It's our daily activities that are being datafied. They're turning into data. Mm-hmm. Um, where do penalties fall, f- fall into, into this? I mean, we can write policy, and that's wonderful. Uh, but financial penalties, I think it was uh, Cambridge, uh, Facebook with its uh, uh, entire scandal about Cambridge Analytica. I think they're, in the last couple of months, they paid $750 million in fines, which 
sounds like a lot, but for a company like Facebook or Google, it's really not. Um, how do we turn it around now? You, you've talked, we've talked a bit about policy. Do you think penalties and financial penalties will have any impact on these companies? Well, one of the concerns I always have when we think about penalties is that they're after the fact, right? So yeah. people have to be hurt before things happen, and then it takes a long time to find fault if fault is found, and then you get this massive penalty. It sounds like a big deal, but as you point out, you know, the the market value of these companies is many, 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 many fold times what, you know, even hundreds of millions of dollars, right? We're talking about companies that are worth hundreds of billions of dollars. So in some ways, I think what policymakers should be focusing on is proactive. We shouldn't be reactive. It shouldn't be that somebody who wants to delete their Facebook account alerts the privacy commissioner that Meta is actually sharing data with various retailers. I think there should be incentives for retailers to back off on either data collection or data usage. And I think policymakers need to stop relying on terms like consent. I mean, if we think about consent, what are we, we're asked all the time if we want cookies. Would it have made a difference if you're checking out at Home Depot and, you know, these big terms and conditions that run thousands of words pop up? I mean, most of us would probably just say, I agree. and move on, right? And so consent has become really not meaningful anymore. And I think relying on that as a vehicle for policy is therefore asking the public to take responsibility for things that are very legalistic, very technical, and frankly, beyond the scope of what any of us can reasonably understand in a daily transaction that happens over and over and over again. Professor Wong, thank you so much for your time today. I really enjoyed our conversation. Look forward to having you on the show again. Thanks, Jeff. Let's get an update on the devastation left by the Turkey-Syria earthquake. Now, today, search teams from around the world worked with local emergency personnel to find survivors, especially those, of course, trapped under piles of concrete and metal. Now, authorities say the death toll as of early this afternoon uh, has now reached 11 thousand people. The challenges, as you can imagine, are immense and they're even tougher when your nation continues to deal with an ongoing civil war. Uh, And of course, I'm talking about Syria specifically. Maya Kutsi lives in Syria and was in the city of Aleppo when the magnitude 7.8 earthquake struck. She joins us now from that city. Maya, thank you for speaking to us today. Good to be here. Thank you so much for having us as well. Uh, Can you describe what you are seeing and hearing in Aleppo today? So it happened um, on Monday, I think on Monday, it was like 4 a.m. We were, everyone was sleeping. It's freezing cold. It's like the coldest week we've been through. And out of nowhere, we just start shaking, like everything is shaking. And it was like really, really scary. We thought it's like end of, end of the world, like really, because there was a huge sound. I can't, I can't even expect, like, explain what what sounds like but it's like it it was really scary like everyone started crying we don't know what's happening even 10 years of war we never experienced this kind of scariness like in inside but um then we opened the internet it says like a very bad earthquake happened and like it's it's like everything is on the floor like um even my house i live in a in an area with not that bad um but like our house the glass went like broken um 
it was like the neighbors like you can hear all the screaming everyone went down to the street without any like they're not wearing anything like they're just pajamas it's freezing cold but everyone like it's i never saw that much crowd in on the streets since like i think 10 years because we don't have that much of gas or like petrol for cars but everyone went out like places that doesn't have buildings and everyone was super scared we waited and then another one and another one and another one and just keep coming but not same as the first one but um it was so scary um then the day after everyone went down to the street to see what's going on people still sleeping in their cars it was like really scary as i told you the internet connection were really bad mm -hmm. there was no electricity um it was actually very 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 cold like thank thank god i'm very blessed i live in a house that it, it's not ruined and we have something to like to keep us warm but some people don't have literally nothing not even a socks how long did the um, initial how long did the initial uh tremor last when the first tremor hit how long did it last for us it felt like like 10 minutes but i think it went like an hour like in a a minute or three minutes max but that is a lot of that, but, that one sustained yes. shaking shaking of the yes. of, of the earth i mean that wasn't and that just was for two or three minutes as you say it, it was really like i i've been through a lot so it, like last year i was in australia there was all the flooding and all the fire and here i was in the war it was nothing compared to this. I was like, I literally thought I'm going to die. Even our house got bombed like six years ago. Mm -hmm. I didn't feel scared, same as now. And um, today I went to like the, the, the areas were really, really bad because their construction is really bad. And during the war, they had lots of um, bombing. And so the, the building is not strong as like much. And because of the also what's it called the the water system and all that mm -hmm. the plumbing it's really really bad it's and it was uh, raining a lot so everything works together to let the building demolish like very bad. Mm -hmm. uh, now, so today we went a lot of people like um, sorry continue. No, I was just going to say um, the people that have lost their homes, where are they staying? In the streets, in some mosques, some also um, uh, church um, schools, um, because obviously there's no schools or university, nothing. So um, everyone opened their doors. Everyone um, uh, volunteered to let people come and like sleep in their house. But it's never enough. Like there's lots of people, a lot of people who need help, and because we like there's some politics happening i don't know what to call it exactly mm -hmm. but no one is allowed to bring us any aids so our people like our community is helping each other like today i went with everyone um i know we brought like clothes food um blankets uh, medicine um baby clothes baby um diapers everything you think of and we went to the very bad areas it was crazy people are actually running behind the cars like not even thinking about something else about the food they just want to eat something like one sandwich uh today's i actually saw in my own eyes a a, a baby boy was actually going to be like hit by a car just because he's following a sandwich 
thank God, like on the last minute, he didn't um, hit him. And we start crying because of that scene. It's mm -hmm. it's really, really bad. Like even if you get like, let's say today, I think more than 2000 sandwich were given to all the people there, but it's literally nothing. Like still people still need way more. You can see the, bil the building is already um, ruined because of the war and like the the bombs and everything and with the with the earthquake it's even worse you can see you you actually can't see a, a normal house in that area like i'm talking about half of Aleppo. it's like really ruined we are speaking to maya kudsi from aleppo syria uh the earthquake as many of you know uh, the epicenter uh, occurred in and around the Turkey and uh, Syria border. Uh, Maya is joining us from Aleppo. And Maya, you were saying, uh, you're talking about the impact it's had on, on the residents of Aleppo. Uh, you were mentioning there is no help at this point from the government or the United a Nations. Nope. Are there any aid agencies there whatsoever? Like, we see some Red, Claw Red Cross, mm -hmm. and um, but it's not much as they need. Like, honestly, I went there and I didn't see that much big um, organization working. Like, it's just the community, people helping other people, and that's it. Mm -hmm. Like, that's, my, that's what I see, because online, on, like, on social media, people say, oh, we're giving millions and millions of pounds, Syrian pounds, but for me, I don't see that it's real. Like, people need way more. And it's all local local community helping. There's not like it's not like actually because like here everything is super expensive. If if any donation comes in dollars or like any kind of currency, it will be very effective because everything here is so expensive. And if you let's say um one sandwich is like less than a dollar American dollar, mm -hmm. if people send like not even ten dollars, it would make a big difference. But they have to make sure that. It comes to the right people, not like, I don't know who take it. Mm -hmm. There's lots of robbery, lots of scams. But like, honestly, everyone needs to move and help everyone because like us as, as a community, like local community, we can't do everything. Is it just one part of Aleppo that is impacted or is it, uh, or is it damaged no, throughout the no. city? Most of Aleppo, but there's one part that it's still like, all right. Like, to be honest, um, like the poor area, it's very 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 bad the good area because the buildings are not super high and they are well constructed the damage is only like furniture electricity or like glass and people you know just like the first floor people can go out can go up because like it's um dangerous mm -hmm. but it's not that bad as the poorer area to be honest but everyone in syria honestly uh, in C in Aleppo, sorry need help is there uh, there's no bread anyway anyway none and people live here on bread is there any uh, recovery effort in regards to moving buildings uh, rubble in regards to trying to find people because you know sometimes people are buried in these in these earthquakes yep, but they're yep, still alive. people stay for like more than 36 hours under the rebels it's bad but um they're trying their best but people actually digging with their own hands because we don't have that much equipment and when like they're trying to send us this kind of equipment but because of american restriction i think mm -hmm. they they're not allowing that's what i'm hearing to be honest but like on when i went to the to the bad areas there was no equipment they all like manual things 
what does your day look like right now? When you wake up uh, in the morning, I don't know when you're sleeping, what do you do? Because the city obviously must be at a standstill. What, what does your day look like? So basically everyone, like everyone, everywhere in Aleppo, they are afraid to sleep. Like now I'm, I think I'm traumatized. I'm letting my, I'm sleeping next to my brother because like I'm really scared. And any voice or any, any sound that happened, we're just too scared. Like what happened? What's, you know? Mm -hmm. And, but all I say, thank God I'm sleeping in my bed. Some people still sleeping on the streets. Some people lost their house. Not some, actually a lot of people. Um, but on this, like in the street, everyone is helping, but there's not much like, let's say cafes, restaurants, there's nothing, closed shops, they all closed, they're everyone trying to help. To be honest, I'm so surprised and happy that our community is helping the other community, the, the one that need help. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but as I told you, it's not enough, but everyone is so depressed and everyone is in shock. I stayed in shock for more than 24 hours. I couldn't speak. I'm just like... Like, not surprised, I, don't, I can't explain it, like, traumatized, but at the same time, what just happened? We just keep saying, what just happened? Mm-hmm. Like, we were sleeping, Next, the next minute, we were just, we don't have home anymore. Mm-hmm. Uh, My friend, she's on the first floor, she lost her house, she can't go up anymore. And some people are wheelchair, they can't go down. My grandma, she's like, I think she's around 70s, but she can't walk her knee. She have a problem with her knee. Mm-hmm. She couldn't go down, so she had to stay, and she was scared. Some people, because they have heart condition, they they, they died, like, on, on the minute, because they were super scared. I heard a lot of stories today, and I was like, I keep saying to myself, I'm blessed, thank God, but I need to give back to the community as well. And right now, as you're saying, what you have seen is the Red Cross uh, seems to be on the ground there. And uh, whatever yes. help people can provide uh, from Canada and other parts of the world, uh, it would be appreciated because right now Aleppo and Syria and Turkey need the help. Aleppo is the most with the Turkey, yes. Aleppo, because Aleppo and Turkey, where it happened, it's only like 30 minutes drive. It's so close. Mm-hmm. So the like the earthquake happened on both countries that very, very close to each other. Maya, thank you so much for your time today. Be good, be safe, uh, and uh, please you. understand from all of us here, you're in our prayers and we are thinking of you. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, and thanks for everyone who's thinking to donate to Syria, anywhere in Syria, no matter what. And if even if, if close, if anything, if possible, people are sending everything from everywhere. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on Apple or Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can always listen to the Jazz Joe Hall Show live Monday to Friday from 3 to 6 p.m. on 980 CKNW and connect with me on Twitter at Jazz Joe Hall BC. Talk to you next time.